again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue with our third season. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. There is no shortage of definitions or descriptions, even in the most basic internet search of one of our field's favorite terms, codependent. The discourse is generally accepted without question and in some circles is considered sacrosanct. A treatment provider in a major metropolitan area for their own purposes of recruiting clients stated that a codependent relationship is a kind of dysfunctional relationship where one person is a caretaker and the other person takes advantage. It leads me to only one sad conclusion. If you're a parent, especially of a young child or an adolescent, by God, (laughs) you're the picture of codependency. Thankfully, there are any number of treatment providers in your area that are really ready and willing to help save you from yourself. Sarcasm aside, if you've listened to the show previously, you know that we have no problem challenging conventional wisdom and looking at things from often unpopular perspectives. Dr. Mark Willen brings statements on the treatment system needing to be bulldozed, discussing what the Cochrane Review of AA and 12-step facilitation actually said, rather than the misleading of those uh, who wanted to overplay its efficacy to promote a certain pathway. Uh, we talked about the unintended consequences of the DEA's policies on medications for SUD treatment, and our very first episode talked about the realities of sexuality and early recovery. Our discussion today takes on a commonly held notion of codependency through a very different lens. Robert Weiss, PhD, LCSW, is Chief Clinical Officer of Seeking Integrity, an online and residential intimacy disorders program treating men with sex and porn addictions, as well as men with co-occurring drug and sex problems. Dr. Weiss is an author, international educator, and clinical expert in the treatment of adult intimacy disorders and related addictions. A clinical sexologist and licensed psychotherapist for over 25 years, he's created multiple treatment programs for prominent mental health institutions, both in the U.S. and abroad. Dr. Weiss is an adjunct professor at UCLA and a consultant and educator to the U.S. military. He often serves as a subject matter expert for CNN, NPR, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He's the author of 10 books, including his latest, Prodependence, The End of Codependency, also Sex Addiction 101, and Out of the Doghouse. On social media, Dr. Rob's Psychology Today blog, Love and Sex in the Digital Age, has over 18 million readers to date, while his podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction, has garnered nearly 9,000 downloads to date. I am truly humbled by his willingness to share his time and expertise. That's 900,000. Not that I have any bit of ego there, but. Oh, and that's uh, what I have written down. I didn't read it correctly. Oh, a lot of people listen. You know, I'm grateful. Hey, Jeff, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad to have you, sir. Um, you know, I'd venture to guess that the, con- the concept of codependency has, has been a boom for the SUD treatment and recovery industry, but much less so for the overall effectiveness of what we do. Has it done damage to the way that we work with individuals and families? Well, you know, I have a very different, I've been in the field for a long time, and I've also had my own issues having to support and love people who have addiction. And um, I have found over the years, and we're going to talk about this, that um, therapists are less and less enthralled with the concept, and they have less and less uh, belief in this concept. And I have come to believe that both for the addict and for the partner or family member that the idea that uh, that there's something wrong with the families or partners for loving an addict and trying to see them through their their pain, um, that I don't see how we can call that a problem. Um, and I don't think it's been a, a benefit for those caregivers of addicts. 
you know, although I, I was aware that codependence was was not a clinical diagnosis, um, you know, not that it wasn't talked about in supervision and in treatment teams and documented as such, generally as an attachment disorder um, on, on treatment plans, uh, I, I was unaware that it was actually proposed and form, proposed to and formally rejected by the APA. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the history of that, of what you know? Sure. So just to say it, I did my PhD dissertation on the subject of codependency because it never felt right to me and because I felt that we needed a different option. And the reality is when I began to study it, that as you said, it's never been a diagnosis and it's never been a formal. And and let me explain what a formal diagnosis is. We have uh, manuals called uh, the DSM and the ICD. And I I won't go all into the fancy initials, but basically they are what doctors and professionals use to code or put a number next to what the issue is so that everyone can understand it. And um, so if you have depression, uh, it has a number. And the way that I know you have depression is because there are criteria laid out. So there, they'll say five of seven. If you have five of seven of these things, that means you have, uh, you're depressed. Or if you have five to seven of these things, that means you have schizophrenia. Um, it's important to have these this kind of manual because if you're treating someone in Connecticut and I'm treating someone in California and you know you come to, you send them to me for treatment and you say they're codependent, well, We don't have any criteria for codependency. There's nothing formal. So what you say is codependency may be completely different than what I believe it is. And we don't have any common uh, communication or common definition for what this thing is. And it's like someone saying someone has a cold. Well, you might think a cold is one thing. You know, what does that really mean uh, in terms of a medical definition? And so while people throw around, around the term codependency, and it's been massively popular in the popular culture, We've never, as professionals, had have been given a formal way to look at this as a diagnosis. It was proposed in 1990 by a physician who was really enthralled with the whole idea. And uh, I've read his book. And again, he said things like, we need criteria. We need research. We need, so as he proposed it, he didn't have the facts and the evidence to back it up. So it never became a formal diagnosis to this day. That doesn't exist. And like you said, it's generally talked about, but it's kind of an amorphous thing that we all have a picture of what it may look like. Uh, and but that doesn't help anyone explain when we're trying, you know, if somebody's moving or we want to help somebody new to read all their codependent. Um, you know, even though there's no formal diagnosis, you mentioned in your latest book, Practicing Protodependence, that it has absolutely become pathologized. Um, and e- Melody Beattie, author of one of the most well-known books on the subject, Codependent and More, seemed to only understand one's reactions to be involved in a relationship uh, in those with SUDs. So she, that's the only reaction she understood. So how does this phenomenon of, of accepting this is what the reaction is become, uh, create itself? Well, it's complicated. You know, there were a lot of cultural factors that led to the creation of the idea of codependence. And without going through them like some kind of fancy PhD, I can say that probably the most significant piece was the women's movement, because there was a huge, you and I both know, there was a huge pressure in the 1980s, as it should have been, for women to get out there and succeed in the workplace. And at that time, there was no concept of uh, it'll be good for you to depend on a man or look up to him. I mean, it was about breaking through that glass ceiling. So the idea of dependency 
especially for a woman on a man, was absolutely pushed away. And it, it bled into the psychological field where we said, oh, people who are involved with troubled people, they too have a problem. And their problem is they're hooked on these troubled people because they're giving them so much attention and they're so dependent on them. They should be more individual, more separate, more, which is the way women's culture was moving. But unfortunately, where that led us is to something we called anti-dependence. It leads people away from leaning on each other rather than making the best, uh, be the best support for each other. So while it was a good concept for the culture and for women at the time, it didn't really pay off in the field of addiction or mental health. And, you know, you referenced the importance of the therapeutic relationship, you know, which we know is the primary indicator of positive therapeutic outcomes. Scott Miller, I listened to you all those times. <laughs> um, you know, it's about 30% of change, according to, to Hubble, uh, Duncan, and Miller. And, and to say that, it, that an effective relationship cannot be formed, given the sociological failings of codependence, you expound upon that a little bit, that it, that we can't form a relationship with somebody if we're being judgmental. Well, you know, I have some very simple ways. You use fancy words. I think you're talking to professionals. Um, I'm going to try to break it down um, a little more, um, a little more pop culture, which is, you know, if I was treating my wife who had cancer and she was at home taking, uh, you know, sitting at home being miserable, didn't want to do chemo, didn't want to, was just really struggling. And I left the family full time. I left all my family devotion in a sense. Oh, sorry. Let me put it differently. I left my commitment to myself to care for my spouse, to give up my job or give up or work three jobs or give up my self-care or completely focus on that person's healing or uh, gain weight or become irritable. Or that was all seen as a, as a natural response to someone who's sick. And if I had a spouse with cancer, people would come and they'd bring me flowers and casseroles. And so to be a caregiver in the medical health world is to be an angel. It's to be a saint. It's to put your life aside for someone that you love. But if the person you love is troubled by addiction, for some reason, the person who does the very same things, who puts aside their own needs, who gives, who takes that second job, who gains weight, becomes anxious, and something somehow there's something wrong with them for having focused on wanting to love and save the person they love. So how could it be that you're an angel if you devote your life to helping someone who is medically ill uh, get well, but if you're working with someone who's psychologically ill, there's something wrong with you for trying to make the person you love better. And that has never sat well with me because it doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, in, in 1642, going back just a little bit in history, English clergyman- I wasn't John there. Don, <laughs> I'm old, I wasn't, not that old. I wasn't born yet, but, but the, the clergyman John Don referenced the interconnectedness of all people, which is with these paraphrased words, right? He said, no person, I had to change that part, no person is an island, an island entirely of itself. Any death diminishes me for I'm involved in humankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We're all interconnected. We're all going to die. So when somebody dies, it's a little bit of a reflection of our own life. The theory, when we talk about codependency, asks us to detach, to separate from those that we care for um, that are suffering, which is really the, the antithesis of Don's words back then. So how does prodependency First, what is prodependency and how does it value the relationships we have? Well, I turned around and said, um, there must be a different way to look at this. And I looked at our history and realized that since 1982 or in 79, 
we have not, uh, Claudia Black first wrote, it will never happen to be 1979. She was talking about this thing called co-addiction, which I think is different because co-addiction implied that I am obsessed with my partner's drinking. I am obsessed with my partner's using. I'm obsessed with what they're doing. And that makes perfect sense to me because, you know, I do need to distance myself a little bit from the obsession of trying to get someone well. I, we can get over-involved. But by the 1980s, it had been turned into this concept called codependency. And when that nasty word addiction was taken out, suddenly any everybody could be codependent. You know, I was a co, you were a co. If I drove across town and went out of my way to pick you up uh, in my car and I was late for work, I was a co, right? Because I gave up of myself to someone else. I think what's happened is this, um, to just bring us up from 1652, is that we've moved from a, a world in mental health from individuation an individual success and achievement as being the highest uh, view of our mental health. You know, I, I'm out there, I'm doing my best, I'm, I'm succeeding, I'm smart, I'm, you know, I'm whatever that is. And, and my work on myself at therapy is really to create the best me I can be. By the way, that defined the me generation was me being the best me I could be. We don't look at mental health that way anymore. We have moved from individualism to connection. You know, if you listen to Brene Brown, if you listen to Jonah Hanahari, if you listen to any of the folks out there, uh, Gabra Mate, Stan Tatkin, you know, what we are talking about is connection. And we are now living in a world in therapy, not of individuation, but of attachment. You know, I am as healthy and successful in the world, not only related to what I can do out there, but also to the meaning of my relationships. I'm not a success today unless I have meaningful friends, unless I have important relationships. Today, I look at my home as the foundation of my life. I can't go out there and be the best I can be unless I have people to depend on when I come home. And that's a very different concept than we had in the 70s and 80s. If you ever went to Est or Lifespring or Insight or any of those personal development uh, courses in the 1980s, they all came out of this concept, which you've got to go out in the world and be the best you you can be and shove aside those dependencies to focus on you. It's the complete opposite of what the indigenous people, what tribal life is like. It's, it's, you know, it does take a village. The whole community is involved in raising the child and raising the community as one. Um, so well, it's interesting. It's important. And we've gotten away from that. And hopefully we're starting to stem that tide a little bit. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because one of my criticisms of a codependency, and there are just a few that are direct, is that it's not culturally applicable anywhere except Eurocentric culture. So when I started teaching pro-dependence, which is a view of moving toward community, moving toward relationships and staying in troubled relationships when you love someone rather than detaching, I found myself very popular in the African-American community, in the Native American community, in the Asian American community, because it is really only in the European world where you want to pull yourself by the bootstraps and you know become this individual. The rest of the world says, that's selfish. That's a focus on you. Lean into your community. Most cultures are much more community-based and which more we are much more individualistic. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a reason why codependency is not can never be a diagnosis because it's not universally applicable. Anybody in any culture can be depressed. Anybody in any culture sadly can be schizophrenic. But the idea of codependency doesn't even and could never exist in most cultures except Eurocentric culture. And when you look at it culturally, you see, like you said, African Americans and and uh, Native Americans, Asian Americans, everybody. The faith communities are often centers of that community, and that's just kind of where they congregate. Me, but but there is so much more to that 
Um, and, and we see when people want to get back to that, that's an important aspect of their life growing up. And it's an incredible healing aspect when they're trying to change some negative behaviors. Jeff, uh, you know, I want to add, uh, if you don't mind, something please. about um, gender, because this is the other area of criticism, which is that um, codependency is gender biased. You know, it's really focused on some of the highest um, skill sets of women, empathy, compassion, nurturing, relationship building. It basically says, well, though, that's not how you succeed in life. And that's not how you're going to be uh, the person you want to be. If you're a woman, you have to be like a man. You have to individuate. You have to be aggressive. You have to be pushing for yourself. You have to be competitive. And really, that devalued a lot of the native strengths that women have. And it basically said, you know, if you're too dependent on a man, that that's a problem, that's anti-female. You know, that is not support women in in some of the best ways that they could be supported. And in that way, there's gender bias as well as cultural bias to the concept of codependency. Uh, I was at a social work conference a few years ago and a presenter was speaking and they stated that uh, the statement says, stigma also marginalizes addiction professionals. And in your book, you mentioned how family members and other caregivers are stigmatized and marginalized by that old thinking. So how do we as professionals fall into the trap of marginalizing those who are trying to protect and support the folks that they care about? Well, let me just start with a scenario, which is I've worked in when and created many residential treatment programs for addiction. And this is how it has gone in the past. I finally get, let's say, my husband into treatment after drinking for years and years, and I have exhausted myself, and I am hypervigilant and overwhelmed, and, and I've gained all this weight, and I'm not working on myself, and I'm miserable. But I've finally done it. I finally got that person I love into treatment. And I walk into the first family group session. And what I expect is, wow, you've been through a lot. Good for you for sticking by them. You both really made it. But what I get instead was, okay, now that this person's in treatment, let's look at what's wrong with you and how you contributed to the problem. And in this day and age, what I hear from families is a big F you to that because they think, wait a minute, I did all of this stuff and you're now telling me there's something wrong with me for overdoing if I didn't overdo. Who would take care of our kids? Who would make sure the home was safe? And I'm talking man or woman. You know, uh, we are stepping, those of us who love addicts are stepping up for the deficits that those addicts have created. And we are trying to fill them in in order to keep things functional. And then we're told that we're over-functioning and we're giving too much of ourselves into a system that who would do it if not us? And then instead of being celebrated, we're told, oh, you gave everyone else too much attention. That, that's, sorry, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't know any other word for it. Yes. Yeah. So I created a model and I said, let's look at this differently. Let's turn codependency on its head and say, people are not acting out with love toward troubled people because of their own past trauma. They may have past trauma, but that's not why they're loving into this situation, giving of themselves. They are giving of themselves and loving into the situation because the person they love is troubled. And who wouldn't do everything you can to help somebody that you love who is troubled? And who would blame you for going out of your way to give of yourself to love someone and help them get through something that's difficult. I, I, I think that's that's heroic work. I would never criticize someone for that. You know, uh, personally, in 1990, I had a brother who, who took his own life with an overdose, but he, he had finally, there was no co-occurring treatment at the time. He had finally got into treatment. And we were at a family session and the family session was saying, these are the guidelines. These are what you need to, have to do. If he does this, you do this. So one of the things I had to do was say, you can't stay in the house. You got to go. Right. And when he passed a couple of weeks later, um, it wasn't pleasant. And then, but it just seemed 
that uh, that that was a common thing when even as I continued to work in the field and say, you really need to separate and individuate yourself from that. They're going to do what they're going to do, and they have to face all the consequences of that. It's just the antithesis of family life. And it's the opposite of what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm saying, but you said it earlier. I'm not saying just go in there and become a victim of the addict. I'm saying take your power back, but stay in relationship to the addict. You know, I never tell somebody who is loving an addict that they there's something wrong with their choice to do something. What I say is maybe you do and didn't do it in the most effective way. But now you and I can get in there and we can figure out how to make it better. Can I tell you my favorite story about this? Because sure. this is so, so anti, so, so anti the way things have been. So I tell this story about a woman whose husband is an alcoholic and he has, uh, she has a couple of kids, young, pretty young kids. And he has gone out and he's lost several jobs because of his drinking. He's had a couple of DUIs and he's picked up the kids more, more than one occasion while drinking. And she just can't live this way anymore. She can't live the uncertainty of her husband going to jail, you know, all that. So she makes a decision. And one day he comes home and she puts an ice cold bottle of vodka on the dining room table. And she says, you see that vodka? And he says, yeah, I see it salivating. And she says, at four o'clock every day, if you come home sober, you've picked up my kids sober. You have not lost your job and you have not been arrested for DUI. In other words, if you don't drink before four o'clock, this will be waiting on the table for you. When you get home, you can drink all you want as long as you stay home. Can you imagine what the uh, codependency community would say to me? Enabling, enmeshing, supporting the drinking, blah, 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 blah. And what I say to you is, number one, this woman never studied addiction, how to treat addiction in high school or college. So how would she know in any way? You know, she started biology. She studied theater. How does she possibly, how could we expect her to know the right thing to do when she's living in an attic? And second of all, what I think she's doing in her home is harm reduction. Mm -hmm. She has created a set of circumstances where her kids are going to school. She gets her husband to keep his job and there's no more arrest history in the family. Now, when she comes to see me, a year and a half later, he has started drinking again during the day. And she realized that that isn't going to work. But what she did was the best solution she had at the time. And now she needs to come to me. And instead of blaming her for the choices she made, I'm going to say, well, that was a really great idea. And it bought you another year or so. But maybe you and I can figure out a more effective way to get him sober over time. And good for you for trying. And that, you know, we in social work, because I'm a social worker, we have this theory of meeting the client where they are, <laughs> meeting the client where they are. And when you have given of yourself to, to your own deficit, to another person, meeting you where you are is saying, gosh, you've been through a lot and I really want to support you. And I can't imagine what it's been like for you. How are you doing? That's meeting the client where they are. When they walk in my office and I say, well, you know, we got to look at your history to see what your trauma is. First of all, people in a crisis, they can't take in complicated concepts. Mm -hmm. And if you asked me what I replaced codependency with in the early stages of addiction recovery, I would simply say crisis model, that what these people need when they love a troubled addict is they need support, they need direction, they need hope, they need simple answers. They need to know how to get through the day. They don't need to look figure out what their mother did that when they were 30 years old that left them staying with this person. That may be true, but who cares? What's what what we have to focus on is how to help a person through this crisis. It's when you said meeting clients where they're at, I chuckle because 
uh, on TPN and TPN.health and one, and when I speak at conferences, one of the things that I'm asked to do is a training hub called meeting clients where they're at and other fairy tales from the fields. And it, it gets, it's about the credibility crisis. We say one thing and do another. Um, uh, it, 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 I've got a lot of pop positive feedback because it just makes things simple saying we're saying this, but we're not doing it. Let's just be, uh, well, let's, let's put our money where our mouth is. Um, you mentioned several times in the book that protopendence is attachment-based with some supporting information, but something else caught my attention, and you just referenced it. Can you talk more about it being crisis-focused? I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I sat back and I said, what is going on with a partner or parent of an addict when they are first entering treatment? And, uh, you know, they come to us and they need our help. Well, first of all, I think they need very concrete help with a very concrete problem that is causing their life to go into a crisis. Well, if it was an earthquake or their child was, God forbid, hit by a truck or, you know, some, we would know exactly what to do. You know, if their husband was dying of cancer, we would know what to do. So um, I don't think we've handled, uh, and I'm not answering your question accurately, I don't think, That's but okay. I don't think we've, I don't think we've quite under, we have not put ourselves in the place of those people who are trying to help. And, um, what I want to say about this, um, give me some more questions and I'll answer some more. I have some other thoughts about this, but I'm old, as you know, and they slip out of my, I'm even older than you are. So they slip out of my brain really quickly. Well, you know, you, when you talk about crisis and, and it's ah. one of the things that I learned from doing, uh, you know, work with, with addiction and SUDs is we don't have to roll up our sleeves and get in there deep and understand what's driving right. the behavior. We need to help somebody. Get them sober. Yeah. yeah. And, if that, and so if that involves putting a bottle of vodka on the table and saying at four o'clock, you can have this, but I need my kids home safely, then so be it for now. It's going to get me through this right now. Um, I've done the best and I've done the best that I knew how to do. Someone else can say, come along and say you were enabling, but I was just doing the best that I could. And they are. So you know, and do people get angry? Do they enable? Do they inmet? Do they do all that stuff that is not productive? Maybe some of the time, maybe not. But my job is to redirect them, not to say, let's look at how wrong you did it and let me help you find a different way. It's to say, you did the best you could. And I'm impressed with you. You're a hero to me. Now let's see if we can work together to make it better. Um, you know, does trauma have a, does tra examining trauma have a place here? Does looking at my actions and how the past reflects my present, does it have a place here? Absolutely. Later. Right. One of the best things I learned as a therapist, I, I think any therapist is listening is you may observe a whole bunch of things, but you don't need to say them. You can have a piece of paper or a pad or a pen and write it down. And when the time comes up, do you know that there are people, Jeff, do you know there are people who don't want to self-examine? Do you know there are people who don't want to analyze their past? They just want things to get better. And I don't have to promise someone, there are three outcomes to a crisis, right? People can get worse, they can remain the same, and they can get better. But it is not our obligation to make someone a better person coming out of a crisis. That's an option. Most people just want things to go back the way they were. And if we get the person sober and support them, that system will improve and they may just go back to the way they were. And it's not my issue if they want to change it now. 
If someone comes to me a year later when that person's been sober and says, you know, I don't like some of the ways I acted when that crisis was going on. Can I figure out why I ended up acting this way as opposed to that way? If they open that door and they are interested in it, then we will talk about maybe some of their challenges with dependency. By the way, we have always had words for over-dependency. We have a term called dependent personality disorder. One of the reasons that codependency was never accepted in the DSM is that the folks who in the APA who created say, but we already have words for over, we have over-dependency, we have enmeshment. Why do we need to create this whole new patina over this thing that already exists in psychiatric literature? And by the way, if you are mentally ill or you have, it generally involves a lack of functioning. You know, and I would say that the partners and loved ones of addicts are are less than functioning. I think they're hyper-functioning because they're just trying to do the job of two all they're on their own. But I want to say something about what you said, because this is very important to me. Well, two things are very important to me. One is um, um, what you just said about pushing someone out in the street. I, too, had a very mentally ill parent who would show up at my house at three in the morning from another state without any identifying information. I have no idea how they got to my door in the middle of the night in the pouring rain. And I would go to my support groups, which were infused with codependency in the 90s. And they said, well, you just need to detach. You just need to let that. It was my mom. Just need to let her be out there in the rain and figure it out for herself. And if you bring her in the house, then how is she ever going to learn it? My mother was never going to learn. She was mentally ill. She would always need support. And just like that, there are people in the, in the addiction community who need a tremendous, who need support throughout the lifespan. And, you know, the, the saddest thing I wrote about, which is what you just referenced, is the mother and father who, after many, many interventions and many, many tries, said, we're just going to leave this kid alone. We're going to let them go out in the street. We're going to let them figure it out for themselves. And then the kid doesn't live. Who wants to be the therapist that told those parents to completely detach and their child didn't make it? You know, there are many ways to support someone without giving everything up for them, um, as opposed to completely detaching from them. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get your life back, but you don't have to let go of the person you love to get that life back. You just have to adapt it. And we have to let go of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the conventional wisdom of somebody having to hit rock bottom. There really is only one rock bottom. And we've seen, you know, where it can get somebody. It's six feet below bottom. And nobody wants to have to have no loved one. By the way, you may need to leave a loved one for a period of time. That may be true. But it's not, um, it's because, you know, it's funny because I was discussing this idea of boundaries recently. And for some reason, partners of addicts think, or loved ones, family members, that I set a boundary in order to keep them from drinking. I set a boundary in order to keep them from using that's not why you set a boundary. You set a boundary because maybe they're being abusive to you or they're breaking things or yelling. You don't set a boundary to create change in them. You set a boundary to support yourself. And this whole idea that if I detach, then they're going to do that. I'm not necessarily sure that that's true, but I understand that's a mainstay of codependency. You did a study on clinician attitudes uh, about prodependence, which again, I find this absolutely fascinating um, with really favorable results. Can you provide some details about that? Yeah, I just, you know, this is a PhD dissertation. And by yeah. the way, codependency has never been proved. Prodependence has never been proved. What I've, what I've floated is a, a concept, a hypothesis, a different way of looking at this, which we needed because you can't just revise codependency. You have to have a new model if you're going to look at it differently. And so I went to uh, clinicians, 68 of them, 
And I asked them if they had addiction experience. Yes. I asked them if they'd had training in addiction experience. Almost 60 did. And then I said to them things like, when a partner of an addict comes in your office, do you think they're in a crisis? Yes. Do you think, and, and then I said, and do you ask them about their past, their history, what they went through with their families? Yes. That doesn't make any sense on the surface because someone who's in a crisis doesn't need to talk about what happened to their family 20 years ago. So basically therapists are saying, yes, I think this is a crisis issue, but I'm going to treat it with analytic and other kinds of therapeutic methods. And then I asked them, I said, how many of you feel that someone has come into you loving an addict and that you have needed to create your own or some version of a treatment model that there isn't one that you absolutely can follow? And over 80% of them said, yeah, I kind of have to make up my own thing. You know, Jeff, there are 400 books with the topic of codependency in them, beating codependency, beyond codependency, learning codependency. You know, I mean, ending, mm -hmm. I could give you a thousand titles. And the reality is, is which is the right one? Because if we don't have a diagnosis, then if you read the version that was written in 87, and I read the version that was written in 94, we're not talking about the same thing. We're not talking about the same issues. We're not talking about the same treatment. And so where else in the mental health field, by the way, does someone walk into our office? This is a separate issue, but I like this one too. If someone comes into my office and they're down, I don't assume they're depressed. If someone comes to my office and they're struggling with something, I don't make assumptions about what's wrong with them. I learn, I question, I'm curious. And I often don't reach any diagnosis for a period of time. But when someone calls us and... They say, "Oh, I hear a doggy. I have one too." That's my dog, Siobhan. That. That's, that's a codependent dog. Siobhan, go. We need to have. I know that nobody likes to label people. I know that nobody wants to have. This is how I'm supposed to do it. That we all want to be flexible. We all want to, but we need some definition for what's wrong with them. It has to be a common definition. We have to work from some kind of common understanding. Um, but what I find with codependency is. If you call me and you say, I have this wife of an addict and she's really struggling and she's been doing this and doing that and it's not working for them, I immediately assume, oh, she's codependent. And by the time she comes to my office, I already think of her activities and behaviors as being codependent. Where else in the mental health field, anywhere, do we make an assumption that this is what's wrong to the person before we've even met them? But for some reason, the idea of codependency has become so popular that it's just assumed that that's what's going on with this person. And yet there's no diagnosis. There's no standardized treatment. It's just a pop culture notion. OK, if you ask me what codependency is, I think of um, what do we use? A primal scream therapy. I think of the bats. I think of things that we absolutely believed were helpful at different periods of time, but ultimately they didn't prove to be helpful. And we don't do them anymore. We don't do rebirthing anymore, but it was a big trend in the eighties. So I really think that where codependency belongs is kind of on that pile of interesting pop culture notions that became part of therapy, but ultimately could not be proven. And therefore they remain pop culture notions. That's it. And I think when we're talking about theory, everybody has an opinion on it and has a different take on it and puts their, their own sway on it. And it becomes, as I said earlier, even much more amorphous. So we don't have something to work from. Um, we're not hearing specific symptoms that we can see if they're happening. We're looking at somebody's behavior and we all, it, it's as if we're treating somebody with a personality disorder rather than dealing with what's happening right now. I don't need to know all of that other stuff. If I if somebody's in a rut right now, we need to try to get them out of it. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because um, what Dr. Tim Cermak was proposing to the APA when he asked for codependence to become part of the DSM was what he was asking for is something called codependent personality disorder. Like you're just overgiving, overtaking over. And by the way, as I said, we already had a dependency personality diagnosis. So it was like adding this sheen of, of functional caretaking for other people. Well, I think functional caretaking for other people is a great thing. In fact, if you are uh, a caregiver, if you're a caretaker and you over-focus on others and you're too giving, or I love this one, you love too much, I want you at my house, especially at Thanksgiving. You're going to cook the food. You're <laughs> going to start the card game. We're going to laugh. We're going to have fun. We're going to keep giving and loving to each other. If whatever that is, is bad, I still want more of it. Um, I want to walk down a road when I am 70 years old and my partner and I are wearing a green shirt and we're both wearing gray shorts and we have flip-flops on. And from a distance, you can't tell us apart. That's the relationship I do want to have. Not that we're not individuals and we don't individuate, but that we lean into each other. In, you know, this whole We're not in an age of detachment in mental health. We're in an age of interdependency. And for some reason, and codependence simply does not fit into that model. By the way, get me on a rant. Mm -hmm. The beginnings of codependency came from four books that were written by four women who I respect immensely and who moved the field forward. But all four of those women were talking about codependency, not from a place of research. All four of those women had abusive or alcoholic fathers. All four of those women married abusive or alcoholic men. And then they assumed that everyone who married an abusive or alcoholic partner or had an abusive or alcoholic partner, family member, they must have this history too. That's never been proven. That's, do you think everybody who marries an alcoholic has a trauma background? Period, the end? I, I just don't think so. That's a huge issue in, in uh, the substance use field. Um, I have a colleague who calls that the fallacy of attribution. The way I interpret things about myself is the way everyone interprets themselves and everyone else. That how how affects me, so goes the world. And if we and see that a that lot is, in the substance use field. Well, you see it a lot in cultures where the way I do it is right. And the way, factually, that's a human human problem <laughs> at whatever level, cultural, individual, you know, is that my way is the right way. But but that's not the way that health is defined. Health is defined by coming together and creating mutual and shared solutions, not by being right. You know, being right and trying to be right left the AIDS diagnosis and AIDS treatment three years behind what it should to be should have been while two doctors argued about who had found the virus. That's where the state of academia often is. And it isn't on actually figuring out the problem. It's on who writes the book, who becomes more well-known and what do we name it? And, and that's, you know, that's just a lot of ego. Uh, you talked to all the clinicians that kind of have to piecemeal something together to help the individual that that's in front of them. And I look at that as a tremendous way to help build a therapeutic relationship because you're using what you hear from that person and inviting them to tell you what might work. And it, 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 it's just a very strength-based kind of uh, a relationship. Well, I'm not going to value disease, but it isn't disease. Again, maybe the ways you acted in this situation in a crisis were not the most helpful. But the question is, where are you coming from inside of yourself? And I say that every family member on some level who chooses to give of themselves to an addict is coming from a place of love. Why else would you? I don't stick by you because of my mother's 
pathology when I was seven and how she, I may have those issues, but I stick by you because I love you and I care about you and I want our family to be together. You know, I got to tell you, Jeff, I, I've written a whole bunch of books. That's my craziness, right? And I've sat in a lot of book lines, signing books, and people usually bring an old book from home and I don't actually sell the book, but that's okay. So I'm glad that they pay attention to it. I'm being silly. But when I sit in book lines now and I talk about codependence, pro-dependence, when I talk about pro-dependence, I have people come up and say, first of all, they're often in tears. And they say to me, this is the first time that someone has said to me, it's not my fault. This is the first time that as a parent, I haven't been told that part of the reason is how I raised them or how I didn't do this, or you're telling me that I am not responsible for the addict's behavior. And maybe that's the message I want to give to the most important message I want to give to the clinical community. Anyone who's listening is that no one is responsible for an addict using except the addict. Partners often feel like, well, if I were nicer, if I were kinder, if I were warmer, if I didn't yell, if I didn't nag, if I did, it doesn't matter what you do. That addict could go for a walk. They could divorce you. They could go find another friend. They can go buy a car or, you know, kick themselves in the butt. But there's a lot of things that people can do when they're miserable other than go use. And if that is their decision, no matter how miserable their marriage or family life is, that's their decision. No one is responsible for anyone else's addiction. And I think there's some sort of underlying concept in codependency that basically says, if you continue to do this wrong, the person's going to continue using. And that's just not how it works. If I continue using, it's because I want to continue using. And if I blame you for your codependency, that gives me another way as an addict to say, well, it isn't my fault. It's your fault. If my if my mom just wouldn't nag me so much about my smoking pot, I wouldn't smoke pot because she makes me crazy. No, you smoke pot because you want to smoke pot and you want your mom to leave you alone. Um, I want to say one more thing, if you let me, about how this affects addicts. Because under codependency, what I'm told as an addict is basically this. I'm a very sick person. And so was my, let's say, my spouse. But if they got better, if they worked on themselves, if they detached and grew, that they might, they probably wouldn't want to be with me anymore because they would be healthy enough to see all my problems. And they would not. And if I didn't produce tremendous change and really grow, they were probably going to move on because they were doing their best to achieve. And that means that I'm a miserable, miserable, troubled person as an addict. And you would only stay with me if I get really better really fast. But when you say to an addict that this person stayed with you because they love you, this person stayed with you through all that crap because they had a deep attachment to you, that says to the addict, there's hope. That says to the addict, there's someone hanging in there for me because they still see the best parts of me. And they are hoping that someday that will return. And in other words, when an addict is at their worst, who holds on to the love and the strength that that addict has had? It's the family member. And the family member still holds on to when things were good. And they stick around because of that with the hope it will return. So they're not looking to get better and leave. They're looking for that person to get better so that th their hopes can be realized about what the relationship or the connection could be. I do struggle with the idea, of even with in codependency, saying, you know, your behaviors may contribute to their use. But when somebody's struggling with a family member that's using, they don't hear contribute. They hear it's my fault. And we've got two people that become that struggle more. Well, you brought that up before. You know, one of the stages of grief, you know, we are talking about you know, Kubler-Ross and her five stages of grief. And we've learned they go back and forth and all this stuff since she wrote it. But she missed one. And I will go to my clinical grave by saying that what she missed was remorse. That when I am in grief, one of the symptoms of grief, when my father passed, 
I said, I wish we talked about this. I wish I had said this. I wish we had done that. When my dog died, I said, I wish I played with him more. I wish I hadn't worked as much. And, you know, it's part of the human condition to blame ourselves when we have a loss. It's just what we do. So why would you take a loving family member or close loved one to an addict and in any way tell them that there's something wrong with them? Because they're immediately inside of themselves going to go to, I am part of this problem. And it would have not been as bad or not even have happened if I wasn't around. And why would you say that to people? It just doesn't make any sense. None of this has ever made any sense to me. You know, when they told me to let my mother sit out in the rain and I knew she did that, you know, let me just say it this way, sorry. Mental health no longer talks about the concept of codependency. If you go on AMI sites or NAMI sites, Mm -hmm. um, National Association of mental illness, which is where, where, by the way, a great place to get support if you love a a mentally ill person. Um, I used to go to groups there and they said, leave your mom in the rain, you know, let her figure it out on her own. Well, the mental health community no longer does that, does that, no longer does that (laughs) because they understand that if you leave a troubled person to figure it out for themselves and they're not healthy enough to figure it out for themselves, that that's how you get homelessness that you leave somebody on the street who is not capable of handling it. And the family on some level goes, level goes, whoo, okay, that's their problem. I don't have to deal with it. They don't have to live in my back house. And then this person is alone without their own ability to function. And what the mental health community talks about today, if you go on those sites, is how to, t- how to manage connection, how to look for problems, how to resolve problems, not how to detach from one another. It is only in the addiction field, in mental health, where uh, the concept of codependency is still strongly floated and strongly attached. Before I don't buy it. Up, Before we finish up, I want to do one thing, and that's say this is a brand new copy. Well, not brand new copy, because I did read it, copy of your book. So if people are buying it, I encourage folks to buy it. Um, well, let me say something about that. It's fine, but it. it's new. There are two books on the topic. I wrote a self-help book. Um, I have to tell you, this is sort of amusing if you have a second. So I wrote this book called Pro-Dependence, The End of Codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking about the end of it as a model. People thought I was writing the 435th book on codependency to tell people how to end their codependency. So I've revised the book to call it um, Pro-Dependence, um, Ending the Myth of codependency, which is going to produce a lot of challenges, but that'll be out over the summer. But I wrote the book that you're holding for therapists to understand practicing codependence. How do I do this in practice? How do I move from codependency to a more strength-based model? And that's what pro- practicing codependence is. Before we finish up, any final thoughts you'd like to add before our listeners? Well, first of all, thank you for doing this, Jeff. I think that you are defined. Thank you for being who you are because I'm listening. You know, I'm a therapist. I listen and I hear the powerful love and compassion that you come from in doing this. And so I just want to thank you because I know that every person we reach who will, that's my favorite thing. If we reach somebody and they heal or grow and we've never met them, that's our greatest gift, you know? And what I would say to you folks is just, you know, I think love, love trumps pathology. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we need to look more at what's right about people than what's wrong about people. And especially people who are suffering in and around addiction. I want to look for their strengths, not their vulnerabilities. For me, I do this because, uh, well, one, it's fun. I get to talk to interesting people. You know, uh, you know, it's not completely altruistic, but, but it's also, uh, it gives us a chance to have, help people have different conversations. Um, and, and that's how we grow. We learn from each other and we have these conversations and, and we develop new opinions. And I think that's fantastic. So 
uh, that's going to uh, take care of today's discussion. Uh, I know we really just scratched the surface. Uh, perhaps we can talk about a more clinical application of protopenance at another time. Um, I do recommend purchasing and reading this book. Uh, it challenges what has been uh, ineffective and unhealthy status quo. Um, and if you listen to this program, you know how much I appreciate challenging the status quo. Um, I am entirely grateful to Dr. Rob Weiss for spending some of his time to talk with us about his work. Uh, I hope that you're impelled to learn more. And we as an organization welcome anyone that wants to join our podcast as a sponsor. Uh, you can reach me at info at CT Cert Board for more uh, information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast application is. And we will catch you next time, everybody. 